Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Andy Arnott with Amy Wees. And this is Seller Roundtable number 101. And we have Alex Hobson here today. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so so we're gonna we're gonna talk. Alex is uh, is the uh, bestest. Is that a real word, Amy? The bestest. <laughs> that, uh, that, uh, he is a magician when it comes to getting creative with your uh, products and how to patent maybe a, a certain sub element of that product. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, Alex. Yeah, I've gotten some pretty uh, interesting things patented that you know at first glance you'd say well, there's no way in heck you can get that patented, but. There, there are uh, strategies you can use to influence the patent office to get them through. Awesome. So uh, before we get started, we would love to know, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit better, maybe give us some backgrounds, uh, maybe where you're born, where you grew up, you know, past jobs, kind of why you got into this. Uh, we, we always like to have a little bit of background. Sure. Well, I, I moved around a lot as a kid. I was originally born in North Carolina, but I moved uh, all, all around and I'm now out in Arizona. Um, and, uh, I, I went to school for mechanical engineering and then I went to work for WL Gore and associates and people, especially in Idaho there, you, you know, about Gore-Tex garments for, uh, outdoor in the winter, but, uh, they make a lot of other products. I started off in product development and I invented a, a lot of new, uh, products and materials for the company. And so I started to get involved in writing the patents, uh, with the patent attorneys. And then I realized I could become a patent agent. And a patent agent has to, has to have a, a technical degree, just like a patent attorney. Patent agent has to pass the patent bar, which is administered by the patent office to make sure that you know what you're talking about. And then you can, you can represent people in front of the patent office and you can help them get patents at a much reduced fee over a law firm, which is what I do. <laughs> uh, so to be, an, to be a patent attorney, you then also have to have a law degree and then you're a you know, patent attorney. And then the, the difference is they can represent people in court, whereas I, I can just get your patent issued. And then if you want to go after somebody for infringement, you need to get a patent attorney. So that's, so that's that end of it. So I realized I could become a patent agent. So I took the patent bar, passed it, and then I started writing full applications for engineers and scientists at Gore. And I worked there for about 20 years and wrote bunches, a bunch of patents for their scientists. And then uh, about 10, 11 years ago, I decided to go out on my own and start my own uh, practice writing patents. And so for the last 10 years, I've, I've written about almost, let's say 900 plus patents around my docket. So it's a lot. <laughs> and, my, and the allowance rate, that, um, that, that's a, a metric of how uh, effective a patent attorney or agent is at getting their patents allowed. And it's the percentage of patents that get issued that they file and prosecute through the patent office. And, and my allowance rate is over 80%. And the national average is around 50 typically, or sometimes less than 50. So I also would like to tell your uh, listeners if they're vetting uh, somebody, someone to help them prepare and file a patent, they should ask them, what is their allowance rate? Interesting, that's a, that's a pro yeah. tip, I love that. Um, go, uh, getting into, um, you know, most of our uh, listeners, watchers are in the e-com space. 
Um, so, you know, they, they might be looking at maybe a product that currently exists and then iterating on that, you know, making uh, some changes um, and things like that. But uh, in your experience, uh, what are some of the big struggles that brand owners face uh, when they, you know, first think about getting uh, patents? Well, to, to get something patented, you have to have something, uh, something that's unique and something that's non-obvious. And so if it's a consumer product uh, and it's very similar to other products, it may be difficult to kind of think about what would be the unique aspect of that. But, you know, if you have even one minor improvement on an existing product, that improvement, if it's not obvious, can be the key basis for getting your patent allowed and issued. So that's that's really the main thing you need to think about is, you know, what have I done to improve it, and is it significant? Like, you know, sometimes people will say, "Well, I'm going to add a cup holder to whatever it is." <laughs> I call it the proverbial cup holder, and I'm like, "Well, if the, if that improvement doesn't really add a lot of advantages and uh, you know make make the product better." you know, that probably isn't going to help you get it allowed. It has to be an improvement that, you know, makes it better. <laughs> right. That makes sense. So can yeah. you give me a, an example of, uh, you know, m maybe something that you worked with in the past where there was a item that could be considered similar, but, you know, they iterated on it or they, they um, you know, got some kind of new spin on it to where they were able to then patent the product? Well, most patents are improvement patents because, you know, other than, um, you know, other than, uh, you know, new, totally new materials uh, or, you know, coming up with a new element. I mean, everything is some combination of known materials that you're putting together in some unique way. Um, let me see here. So, um, you know, we recently got a, a patent uh, issued and it's a, it's a, it's a, people maybe have heard about the TheraCane, right? And that's a, a, a cane that you can use to rub on your back. And um, so the, the, the inventor uh, that I worked with, they said, well, we wanna have one with a handle on it so you can get better leverage. We want that handle to be adjustable along the length of the, of the cane. So we prepared the patent application and we talked about how that, um, that handle was um, uh, slightly attached you know, to the uh, elongated portion of the theracane. <laughs> I'm using patent language. Um, but yeah, and so we were able to get it through. I mean, it, it took a, at least one office action and talking to the examiner in a, what's called a phone interview. But we talked about how that really made an improvement in the device because you can uh, apply more pressure, you know, at different points on the body because you have that adjustable position of the, of the handle. So that's one example. Awesome. So, um, you know, say that, you know, Joe's out in his garage, uh, you know, coming up with his, his next new invention and he's, he's, you know, he's got something kind of started to put together, but he wants to go share it. He wants to get, you know, uh, you know, input from his neighbors or from people at work. Um, you know, when should somebody start really thinking about, um, you know, patent or pat, pat protections at that point should be, should they be trying to go for a provisional patent to kind of shop the idea around, uh, you know, what, what would that look like in your mind? Well, well really, um, the U.S. is under what's called first to file now, and that, that changed back in 2013. Uh, and so you really don't want to disclose your idea to anybody until, um, unless you have an agreement, a confidentiality agreement, uh, until you get uh, at least a provisional patent filed. 
And so really the, the first step, like when you start working on something, you think, oh, this is really cool. I think I might have an invention. Should I file a patent or what should I do? I, I would really encourage people to just first maybe go on Google and do a lot of searches for that product. Uh, and then if they're satisfied that they can't find anything like it, then call somebody like me to do a patent prior art search. Uh, because there's lots of things in the patent literature and, and, and also in other databases that um, you might not be aware of by just doing a you know, Google search. And so then if, you know, if the, if the uh, patent agent or attorney doesn't find anything that looks similar, then I would say, yeah, go ahead and prepare uh, you know, provisional or, or regular patent or non-provisional and get it filed. But the, the cost, you know, it's really an important step of, of due diligence to do the patent for heart search before you do, before you prepare a patent. Uh, and, it, and the cost of it, it's much, much less than preparing a patent application. So that, I think that's really a wise first step for anybody who thinks they have something uh, that's unique and of value. So basically also, they need yeah. to, yeah, they need to search um, and see what I love to do. Cause I think people will go to like Google patents. And if you aren't familiar with patent language it's really hard to search for a similar product, right? Because we, in a utility patent, you're patenting the way that something is used or the way that it works. So it's not like if I'm searching, you know, I create a new bottle with a new type of cap that's interesting and different than any other bottle on the market. I need, I'm not going to be able to just search for bottle, right? <laughs> I am going to have to really search for the way that something works or so what I love to do is search do like a Google search for similar products and then I will see like go to their website and stuff and see if I can find any information um, but do you have any tips I guess for amateurs when they're first doing that patent search because that's a question that I get all the time of course I always tell them like you know, search on your own, but then um, hire an, a patent attorney or a patent agent. I have two patent agents that I love. <laughs> you and Don are like my my two go-to patent agents. Mm -hmm. But um, but the the thing is is you know, do you have any tips for the? You know, we have a lot of brand owners, and they're constantly bringing new things to market. And the others, the other side of it is they're worried that something they're bringing to market infringes on someone's patent. So that's the reason they're doing a search. Um, right. So what's the easiest way or the best, the most effective way for us without becoming patent agents ourselves to yeah. do a search like that? Well, there's, there, like you said, there's Google patents. You can actually also use the USPTO, uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office. They have a search uh, database you can use. It's a little bit more clumsy than Google patents, but I would really uh, recommend using what's called freepatentsonline.com because you can type in a couple of keywords, you know, uh, and and they'll give you a a, a for, you know a, a list of patents that kind of match that keyword phrase, and then if you click on one and you think it's close, it'll then show you the ones underneath that uh, were referenced when it was being prosecuted by a patent office. So you can kind of then if you see one there that looks even closer. Just click on it and it's and it's super user friendly and easy and, and you can kind of progressively get closer and closer to your idea uh and that's i mean that's a good way i think for people to start there's other ways you can do what's called a signee search like you said you'll go and you look for similar products you look for companies 
you know, somebody like me, uh, you know, I ask people before I do a search, do you know of anybody else that has something similar? What are the names of the companies? And I'll do assignee searches uh, looking for any patents that are assigned to those companies. And sometimes I do an assigned search and it's like a thousand, right? And I'm like, well, that's still too many to go through. Then I say, so when my search, I, I subscribe to a professional searcher database, but then I can do the assignee search and then I can say, okay, now subset that by a particular class or subclass within the patent office. Or I can say, or, or you know, subdivide it or, or, or sub search it by some keywords too. Um, so it makes it easier for me to narrow in on things a lot quicker uh, having that, that database. But yeah, I'd say go to free patents online. If you, and if you are ambitious enough to, to try to do some other types of searching, you can search by assignee on the USPTO. And you can also search by class and subclass um, because whenever patents are filed, they get uh, put into a class and a subclass. And you can go onto the USPTO website and look at the classification descriptions uh, and you can search those and you can kind of find some that are similar, similarly describe your product. And then you, know, you can kind of totally scour those particular classes and subclasses. But that's, again, a little bit more work. <laughs> so <laughs> it gets Got it. Fast, really, but. Right. So that's, a, that's such a great tip to also look by classes because then you're going to find multiple products that are similar to yours. Like, especially like if you're in, if you're making dog toys or you're you're making a type of a knife or something like that like that's going to fall into that subclass and yeah. you're going to be able to search or if you're making a kitchen container or something like that right. um it's all going to be there and then you can kind of go through those and look at the drawings and get an idea um sure. so let's talk about this is always the the scary part people are like okay so i need to file my provisional so that i can get patent pending and that buys me a year right, right. um but that's only for a utility patent it's not for a design patent we'll get into that in a minute but right. um yeah. but can we get into length of time so you know <laughs> i have some patents that were good to go, especially design patents they can be granted in as little as six months and i have utility patents that have taken a lot longer and I'm still fighting. So um, when it comes to timing, how long does it take to get a patent after filing the application and what can be done during this period of time? Well, you have options. Um, you know, if you file a provisional and don't do anything for a year, you, you, you've already set one year uh, you know, of time. Uh, so, and then if you file non-provisional and you just file it the regular way, it typically takes anywhere from, I'd say, 18 months to two years before you get your first office action. So if you did the provisional and then a non-provisional with regular filing, you're looking at two and a half to three years before you get your first office action. So if you if that's not acceptable to you, there's there's other options. Uh, so one option is, you know, don't wait, you know, don't file a provisional at all, just file a regular non-provisional first, um, which will cut off a year. Or you can, you know, if you file provisional, um, you, you might be spending a few more months, maybe six months, getting your, your concept really uh, nailed down. Don't wait the full year. Go ahead and file six months after you filed your, your provisional. A lot of people kind of just mindlessly say, okay, I filed my provisional, I'm going to wait the full year. But you don't have to. You can file it the next, you can file a non-provisional the next day if you want to. Then there's uh, other options. If uh, for example, one of the inventors is over the age of 65, you can get free accelerated examination based on age. So you can file it with that petition and you're probably going to get an office action back within 
about six months to eight months. Then there's also what's called a track one uh, prioritization uh, uh, or or prioritized examination request. Now that costs some money. Uh, so if you if you want to file that uh, with your non-provisional, it's it's going to be accelerated just like I said for the petition based on age, and you're going to get a feedback within um, about six months to eight months. And the fee for that for a micro entity, I think is I think is either a thousand or five hundred. I, I get confused. Let me look at let me get, look it up. Yeah, it's actually a thousand fifty. So the request for prioritized examination is a thousand fifty. But then you're instead of waiting a year and a half to two years, you're going to get feedback in probably six months. And and I filed patents for people uh, with the track one request, and I I actually got a notice of allowance. I think like six weeks later. <laughs> so. I, I think that might be a record. I, I'd like to know what the record is, but that's super, super fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is pretty fast. So let's say that I go and I do, we already talked about how to search by class, how to search by assignee, how to use free pants, patents online, um, all of those resources. How do we know when we see a product that might be similar to ours, do you have any tips? Like when I read patent language, it's really confusing. Do you yeah. have any tips for kind of deciphering whether or not you might be infringing on someone else's idea or someone else's patent with your idea or your differentiation of a product? Okay. Yeah. So, so what you would do is say you find a, a patent that looks like it describes, uh, or it's kind of similar to your product. Number one, what you want to do is determine whether or not that patent is actually active. So you can go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office and go to public pair and type in the patent number or the application number, and then it will show you, have they paid their maintenance fees? Is it an active patent? You know, a lot of patents are issued and they're granted, and, but then, you know, three and a half to four years later, people don't pay the fees to maintain it, and it's actually abandoned. So if it's abandoned, um, and especially if it's been abandoned for quite some time, you can feel pretty comfortable that that, that is now in the public domain. The, the owner of the patent can revive a patent if, if it's gone abandoned for failure to pay the maintenance fees. But you know if they haven't done it within a couple of years, uh, they have to have a pretty darn good reason as to why they didn't uh, pay the fees on time. So uh, that's the first thing, make sure it's um, actually active. Now, the other thing too is you probably, when you go on pair, you wanna look at um, you know, cross references to see if there's, there might be other patents that are in the patent family. Like, so when you file a patent, sometimes you get the first one issued, then you'll file a divisional or a continuation, or they may file what's called a continuation in part. So there could be you know, a lot of patents that are very similar to the one that you're looking at, that, you know, that one you're looking at might be abandoned, but there might be other ones that aren't. So you really need to understand the entire patent family for that application. So then, then you can look at, for the patents that are active and issued, um, you can then go to the claims and you wanna look at the independent claims and, and for you to infringe, you have to have each and every element uh, listed in the claim um, or really an equivalent thereof. So, um, so when you look at that, you basically read, say it has a, you know, a handle, you know, uh, say, for example, it's a, it's a cane, right, a therapeutic cane. So you would say it has, you know, elongated straight portion, it has a curved portion, you say, yeah, my product has that. 
you know, does it have a handle? Yes, it has a handle, but it, it but um, so, so for example, if my client with that therapeutic uh, cane application found a patent that was, had the handle, but it wasn't slightly engaged, um, they would infringe because they have, they have all the elements, but they have an additional feature. Their feature is that the handle is slidable. So they would be dominated by the other patent that talked about therapeutic cane uh, with a handle that extends from the side because yeah, they have, they have all the same elements. So that's a, that's a big um, uh, thing that you need to look into before you go to market. Because if you spend a lot of money to make your product and marketing all, all the other stuff that you spend money on, and then you find out, oh, well, I'm dominated by somebody else. As soon as you get out there in the public and start making money, or maybe even before, you're, you're probably going to get a letter from those people saying, hey, that you're infringing our patent. You need to cease and desist. So again, to infringe, you have to, you have to have each and every element of the claim. So you have to just kind of methodically go through it. And some people do what's called a claim construction table, and they'll pull out each statement of the, of the claim, and they'll kind of check it. Like, do we have that part? You know, okay, yes. Next one. Do we have that part? Check. Okay, we got it. So that's the exercise you have to go through. Got it. So Andy, did you have a question? No, no, okay. I didn't. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I thought I heard you say something, so I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, so for example, with your with the cane products, the reason that your um, client was able to gain a patent for that is that they changed the handle on the product to actually function differently. So even though their product was essentially the same as the other patent and they would have infringed on it had they just kept it the same because they changed the handle and they were able to say ours functions differently. It's used in a slightly different way in the way that it functions. So they were able to patent it because of that. Um, so when, if I'm just recapping what you're saying about that, it's basically like, I need to read through the claims. I need to understand all of the patents because some strategies that big companies use um, and even small companies use, like what I did with mine when I'm waiting for my utility patent to get approved, I've filed multiple design patents so that at least I can protect each part of my product because right. design patents get approved fairly quickly. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're saying is you need to understand every part of that patent family because had they, you know, filed multiple patents on it that you didn't look at and you only looked at one, then you might be infringing on something and, and not realize it. And I agree with you completely. Like you should do some searching on your own, but you should hire someone who understands how to look at that patent family and how to really understand what you're getting into, right? You really should, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not just saying that because you sell services, right? Like, I mean, it is important. I'm sure you've seen a lot of people um, get into trouble and, you know, that that would be crazy, right? In terms of if you do infringe on someone's patent, they can literally sue you for all the profits that you have gotten uh, and then damages and, and then some. So that would not be any fun. <laughs> yeah, that would not be good, yeah. So, so I I do want to, yeah, I do want to make sure that people understand that you can get a patent issued and granted on, on an improvement, but you can be dominated by somebody else's issued patent. So you can you can get a patent in your hand, like, hey, yeah, I got a patent on this improvement, but you actually are not allowed, if the company decides to send you a cease and desist letter, you're not allowed to actually make it and sell it. 
So that was kind of weird. But oh wow! So like your Therapane guy with his slidable yeah. handle. Right. If the P original makers of the Theracane would have said like, no, this is right. all you did was change the handle, right. they they could have said, no, you can't do this. But but that the particular references related to just the cane with the handle are old and they're expired, so that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if it hadn't been an issue to enact a patent, that would be a case where they were they they got the patent allowed because they improved it, but they're dominated by somebody else's issued an act of patent. So, got it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, can we talk a little bit about provisional patents? I think people are always confused by these because they're called patents, but they're not really patents, right? Like no one's actually reviewing that. So can you tell us what is a provisional patent and how can it be useful? Well, a provisional patent is, you know, really has, uh, it's, a, it's a patent application you file to set your priority date. So uh, as I mentioned before, the US is operating under first to file and so if you have a great idea and you want to explore it more and, and you don't, you maybe want to talk to some people or whatever it might be, you might want to file the provisional patent to set your date of filing so that if anybody files after that date, you would be first to file and you would get the patent, you know, over them. And so a provisional patent, uh, really the requirements from the USPTO are very minor when it comes to what the provisional patent needs to look like. You, you can take a piece of paper, you can write down your concept and, and describe it as thoroughly as you can. You can sketch up you know, two, three, four figures and label them and send it in. Um, and the fee is only $75. So it's, they're not gonna be making sure that you have proper claim language. They're not gonna be making sure that your line drawings are proper in terms of uh, clarity and you have everything numbered properly. Like I said, it's just a really great way for people to get something filed quickly to cover their idea. Now, with that being said, you know, if you do file a one paragraph provisional patent with one little sketch and you wait a full year and then you go to file your non-provisional and you work with somebody like me who's gonna write a real proper patent application and we put together a 10 page application and eight pages of figures um, and we write up all the claims probably most of those claims that we file in that non-provisional a year later will not get the benefit back to your provisional because the claims in that non-provisional to get the date back to the provisional have to be supported by whatever you said in that provisional, right? So if you don't say very much, you're not gonna really support very many claims later. Yeah, the way that the way that my agent described it to me when um, I was originally filing mine was we want to make the non-provisional, uh, sorry, the provisional as strong as possible, because right. if if there was any if someone else invented something in that time frame, right, yeah. as well, and and then we're suddenly filing our non-provisional and all of our claims are perfect and they're different from what we originally filed. Then they can go back and look at that and go, well, no, we have proof we invented this before, or we did this before. And it, so what we did was we tried to write as good of a provisional as we possibly could, where we could basically just make like a couple of tweaks and file a non-provisional. That's exactly what I do. I, like, um, yeah, so, so my fees for preparing, preparing a provisional are you know the same as a non-provisional, but then when you get to the one-year point for the non-provisional, it's just a really minor fee to review it and, and file it as a actual non-provisional. Uh, and 
And the other thing too, like if you do a really, uh, you know, sp uh, sparse uh, provisional, you kind of feel like, oh, okay, I have it covered. But then you actually, and you might get out in the public domain, you might be describing it, and you might be describing stuff that you really didn't even write in the provisional. So now your public is disclosing, you know, alternative embodiments that you never even filed on. So, you know, people get this sense of security by filing these really short provisions. That's not a good idea. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.